Humphrey Bogart is a legend of Hollywood's golden age, but there is, among cinephiliac noobs, a common misconception about the screen acting in the first half of the 20th century, that it was comprised of typecast performers playing stock characters in a style so far removed from anything resembling realism that the distance can only be measured in light years. On more than one occasion, some poor unfortunate schmo has, in my presence, voiced the objectively wrong opinion that Humphrey Bogart always plays the same part in every movie. Now, in those moments, it is my heartfelt intention to explain to them that they are, through no fault of their own, mistaken, and it must be because they have only seen one Bogart movie in its entirety and are otherwise relying on sound bites and film clips to inform their aforementioned objectively wrong opinion. I then try to cite specific examples of the incredible acting chops of Humphrey Bogart and give them a list of recommendations to watch so they can witness the man's greatness with their own eyes. I then might sprinkle in some trivia about the man and his life so they know he wasn't only a great actor, but also a great person. That is my intention. Reasoned, logical, Aristotelian kind of shit. But invariably, what comes out of my mouth are the words you, is, with, the, what, wrong, and fuck, though not in that exact order. I can't control what comes out of my mouth in that moment. It's an actual trigger for me, and I don't use that term lightly. That isn't even my worst trigger. Don't even get me started on Myriad. Ah, oh, shit. Too late. I've already started. Okay. I talk about it, I joke about it, and without a doubt, I take it very seriously. But for those who don't know me very well yet, I actually do have a problem with the misuse of the word Myriad. And it really is a problem. I could go on for hours about how it should be able to be taken out of a sentence and replaced with any large number, traditionally 10,000, and the sentence should scan the exact same way. How it should never be followed with the word of. How it can't be a noun because you can't pluralize it or make it possessive. How it is inherently an adjective. Or how, even when people try to make it a noun, they use it as an adjective because it always has to exist in the company of another noun since it can't function or exist as a noun on its own, you know, like any other noun in the goddamn English language is perfectly capable of doing. I know I could talk for hours about it because I have talked for hours about it, and for the record, it's an adjective, but it's also a problem because I really can't stop myself. I can't stop noticing it, I can't stop correcting people on it, and I really can't stop from getting heated in my discussions of it. I was almost fired from a job once because I got into a verbal altercation with my boss about it in a conversation that began jovially enough. I don't know when it happened, but at some point, the look on his face changed, and I realized I had been on the verge of shouting at him in front of everyone. I wasn't fidgeting with ball bearings or searching for keys that didn't exist, but I really wasn't driving with both hands on the wheel in that moment either. I hadn't watched today's film in a long time, but in revisiting it for the podcast, I was able to relate to Bogey's character in a way that I hadn't before. Maybe it was my own experiences with mental illness and brushes with complete disconnection from reality, but a character I had always seen as a villain and viewed with disdain suddenly had a lot more pathos than I could find before. Don't get me wrong, it was always an outstanding performance from arguably cinema's greatest actor, and I only say arguably because I will absolutely argue with you on that point, and it would need to be to stand out in a film chock full of career best performances. Van Johnson, Jose Ferrer, and a so good in the role you hate him as a person in real life, Fred McMurray. It's got a lot of great acting, but we'll find out if great acting is enough to make a great movie as we discuss 1954's Edward Dimitrik directed World War II Tale of Madness in the Face of the Enemy on the High Seas of the Pacific, The Cane Mutiny. <laughs> Oh,
Call it in. It's danger close. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Danger Close. My name is Dan, and I am here today with my co-hosts... Katie. And Liam. And today we are going to talk about The Cane Mutiny, a 1954 Humphrey Bogart film. Katie? Welcome, everybody. So The Cane Mutiny was directed by Edward Dimitrick and stars, as Dan said, Humphrey Bogart, Brad McMurray, Jose Ferrer, and Van Johnson. It's fictional, but we're going to talk a little bit more about that later. So it takes place during World War II in the Pacific Theater. It's about the USS Kane, which is a rundown Navy minesweeping ship. After a series of bad judgments and cowardly actions by the captain, one Lieutenant Commander Quig, best name, the crew, led by Steve Merrick, mutinies to save the ship from going down in a storm, resulting in a tense court-martial for Merrick and his fellow officers. So this came out in 1954, which was at the 27th Academy Awards. It garnered seven nominations, which included Best Picture and a Best Actor nomination for Bogart, which unfortunately they all lost. It was also nominated for a Golden Lion at the 15th Venice Film Festival, which, for those who don't follow the film festival circuit, is about as prestigious as it gets outside of the Oscars or Cannes. It's a big deal for an American film to win, especially then. So the film is based on a book by Herman Wouk, and it was also a very successful Broadway play that more focused on the courtroom aspect rather than on the ship aspect. And generally, critics liked it, the audiences loved it, but Critics didn't consider this a masterpiece. It had a budget of about $2 million, and it ended up earning about 8.7, which ended up putting Columbia Pictures in the black, which was pretty good for that time. Yeah, that's that's a good take. Yeah, yeah. You, especially in 1954. <laughs> so everybody loved the acting, and the adaptation from the book was very well respected, but... Some people weren't really big fans of the pacing, and a lot of people have problems with the fact that they included what they considered, anyway, a superfluous romance story for one of the characters. Today, though, we look at it as a classic of modern cinema, and it's particularly great example of Humphrey Bogart and Fred McMurray's skills. McMurray, in particular, was kind of typecast into comedic roles after this point, especially with um, Disney. And... Personally, I'm kind of torn between him and Jose Ferrer as best performances in this. Wh who did you guys like the best out of this as actors and performances rather than as characters? So everybody has to take a backseat to Humphrey Bogart for my money. Um, that's just a rule. If Humphrey Bogart's in the movie, everybody else is running for second place. Um, Unless it's Catherine Hepburn, my dude. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess. Mm -hmm. I love Catherine Hepburn too, but I would have to say that. So uh, my relationship with Fred McMurray it has always been a fraught one because I know most people know him for his Disney movie roles and for uh, like, you know, flubber and things like that. The happiest millionaire. Exactly. Uh, very light stuff. And and of course, uh, fathers no, father knows best on television. Yes. He was like before uh, before the advent of the Cosby Show. 
he was America's dad for like that was just he was considered it as far as tv dads go uh, while we're on the dad topic can i just ask a question is he secretly pierce brosnan's dad because i was like man he looks so much like pierce brosnan <laughs> this it's crazy <laughs> that's funny i know you know i never would have made that connection but now that you say it i kind of see it oh good i'm glad to hear that Oh man, I could not stop seeing it. Yeah, it was like all over. Like even his expressions, it's not just his look. They have like that, that, the eye narrowing. Yeah, and the eyebrows, the sort of like, I'm sexy, but confident, but also kind of confused or similar eyes, similar sort of chin. Yeah, no, I see it. He's missing the widow's peak Mm -hmm, for sure. Yeah. And very masculine. But with Fred McMurray, I know him best from this. Double Indemnity and The Apartment. Yeah, so hell yeah. I, I've always thought he was kind of a piece of shit. But like, like as a person, I just like my mind goes there because I know him from these like yeah, where piece he's of just, shit roles. Like he's yeah, he's a, bad a terrible dude. person. I feel like we're going to we're going to have to start new segments uh, like this segment's going to be called. <laughs> people that Liam hates, you know, it was, it was, uh, Peter oh, Jackson we in the could last do, film. And then- <laughs> Dude, we could seriously start a whole new Patreon podcast, like put it behind a paywall and just Things give me Liam a name hates. and just like, let me go. Uh, just, you know, be like, okay, Liam, what do you think of Jennifer Lawrence? And then buckle the fuck up. So anyway, uh, Fred McMurray, uh, actually was accosted on the street by a woman who uh, saw the apartment and like all but spit in his face. She pulled a Jose Ferrer on him, like throw the champagne cocktail right on him. And she said, I just saw you in the apartment. And that, sir, was no Disney film and like walked off. (laughs) And that, and he had like this, he had this moment where he was like, oh man, I can't take roles like that anymore. No. He's like, I got to be careful about the kind of the kind of stuff I take. So he just took fluff after the apartment, pretty much. Um, Which is so it, sad because he's a tremendously skilled actor. Like he's great at being a dickhead. Right, Dan? Have you seen Double Indemnity? No. So, oh man, this is an episode where we're going to get into dance. Oh, you haven't watched any movies? Yeah, <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> well, especially it's another one that's well worth watching. Not everything is Blade Runner, but it is an it is a classic noir. I'm behind on older films, and I will have to admit right up front here that while I know his reputation and you know I've read about it a lot, this is actually my first Humphrey Bogart performance. If he's innocent, this is the first time. Shut the fuck up what <laughs> i am in, in insert gasp here because i knew what you were gonna say i was like oh he's never no this is his first when i was i was i was tensing up i was like there's no way i was like he's 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 i think he's gonna say bogart but he's not gonna say bogart he's gonna say no somebody else yeah actually this might Have you not seen casablanca I have not, it's on my list, you know, like, obviously I've got movie lists, I've got the list with my girlfriend, I've got the list with uh, my other podcasts and with, like, friends, so, you know, we work through multiple lists. Um, I would say that uh, 
actually Jose Ferrer is probably the only actor here that I recognize as having seen as something famously as the Turkish Bay in um, Lawrence of Arabia. That's uh, and then of course I'm familiar with his son who just passed um, I think a year ago or maybe two years ago. Yeah, a couple um, years ago. Yeah, Miguel yeah. Ferrer. He was on so fabulous. Yeah, I mean, thank you, Miguel Ferrer. Yeah, he was in famously in uh, RoboCop, and then I think he and had Twin a Peaks. long career in like and CSI was he or one of those on shows. That, uh, it wasn't CSI. That, well, he might have also been on CSI, but wasn't he? It, there was a he was always like that guy in those shows. Like he was always somebody's like gruff captain. I feel like yeah, he's that guy. He's one yeah. of those. But um, and he, he's great. And his dad, I think. I think this is the first Jose Ferrer movie I've seen, unless I just am not remembering because I've watched hundreds of old movies. Have you seriously not seen Cyrano de Bergerac? No, no. My mom never showed me that one. Or if she did, I was too little. That was the one he won his Oscar for. Mm. Wait, hold hold the telegraph. You haven't seen Lawrence of Arabia? No. Holy shit, I didn't realize. Oh man, this is like an episode where we all find out what we haven't we're seen. All, okay. We're I'm all really admitting excited. our shame. It's not about shame. It should really be about excitement for the person who hasn't seen this stuff yet. Because I am super I excited for your first view into Lawrence Arabia. You should be a little bit ashamed that you haven't seen a Humphrey Bogart movie before. That, like maybe just a touch. No, you shouldn't. Just a little. A no. little flavor. No. I have no shame. And then it's got like salt bay, just like sprinkle a little dash of shame. Dude, when people tell me when people tell me they haven't seen Blade Runner, I don't shame them at all. I'm just excited for them. I mean, they're either gonna love it or hate it, but you know, whatever. My rule is to always say, I am so excited to hear what you think about it if you watch it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I am I'm impossible to shame into watching something because I have what I like to call my patented uh Liam Masick spite reflex. Which is uh, I have one of those. I do the exact opposite of what people tell me to do most of the time. So uh, yeah, it's a it's it's not a bug; it's a feature. I'd rather shame people for what they do watch, like my friends who just like watch a lot of hot garbage, especially ones who know cinema and know good film. I'm like, why are you wasting time with this? Like, I know Liam just did Leprechaun on Fright Pub. And well, yeah, like, we just did so, Fright you know. Pub. Just did Leprechaun. <laughs> and hey. Bad movies are a different thing. Sure. That's a true. dumpster fire. Yeah. That one is. Oh, it's dropping on Friday. You guys should listen to I it. I mean, just the cover <laughs> of that film, I was like, what in the hell is going on here? Yeah, sometimes a movie is like visibly bad from 10 paces. It's not nice to make fun of a leprechaun. So, Dan, if you hadn't seen a Bogart movie before, what was it like for you? So I did, I had my mom and my uncle here at the house. I'm visiting some family. And so, um, and they're, you know, my uncle's in his seventies. My mom's almost 70. So uh, she's not a big film buff. My uncle was super stoked because he was like, oh yeah, I remember this movie. And he was like adamant to warn me that he's like, this is a great performance by Bogart, but realize that it's not his typical role and not his typical performance. So this is like a very different Humphrey Bogart, which is fine by me. I'm actually, I'm happy to be introduced to a performance by him in something not typical or typecast or whatever. So I think oftentimes um, in military films, I don't necessarily get pulled out of the fact that there's all these like mid 30 year olds playing captains and, you know, early thirties or even through their, like a good example is Brad Pitt and Fury, who is he's like 
52 or 54 or something playing like it's a, almost as bad as high school girls in like teen dramas now it, right but, because but, they're all played by like 29 30 year olds sure. or something like that but for so. military stuff like i don't know i i just i don't get nitpicky about that because i'm like okay this is a performance we're trying to really it's all about the writing and the acting so i have to admit though like humphrey bogart did look pretty old for a lieutenant commander and for for a captain of a ship who's been in the navy He'd actually been in 14 years, but yeah. It almost cost him the role, actually. Um, the, the, there was uh, a lot of discussion that he was too old to play the role. Well, he was born in uh, 1899. <laughs> he was in the Navy. He served in World War One, right. Yeah, and he died three years after this came out. So this is one of his last he roles. He had just developed uh, cancer uh right before this movie like he was he was going through the early stages of cancer when he was cast in this movie but um but he hadn't been diagnosed as of yet so he was like already dying but nobody knew it another tragic one surrounding this was um the uh, robert francis who played willie keith who was being groomed to be hollywood's next big star which is nuts Mm -hmm. Because he sucks. <laughs> He's good looking and tall, though. I'll give him that. Uh, I'm I'm giving Liam a face right now for saying that, just because you guys can't see it. He was 24 in this, and then he died a year later in a bonanza. They. I'm sorry. Like, he's... I, I don't mean to talk about his acting while we're talking about his tragic demise, like, a year or two after this. But, like, when I... So, I've watched this movie for a really long time. Like, this is not my first viewing of it by any stretch. Uh, I watched this movie as a kid uh, and I watched it in high school and I watched it in college and I showed it to my wife and I watched it again for the podcast. Like this was, this is one that I'm familiar with. Uh, The, the first viewing I had, I was like, Man, I guess they thought different things were attractive in the 50s. Yes, they did. Like, he's a very 1950s star. You could not take that guy and try to make him a movie star in literally any other decade of the, like, 100-plus years that we've been making films. He was being made a movie star in the only time that he could have been made a movie star. But you know what's funny? While we were watching it, I don't know if you guys have seen Hail Caesar. Yes. Um, by the Coen brothers. Oh, it's great. There's um, a bit. It's fantastic. That, yeah, there's it. there's an actor in that who's played by a young kid who looks kind of like that that um, Robert Francis. And he, he's in the same situation. He's being groomed to be an actor. And I was watching it and I was like, I wonder if he would be able to say, um, would that it was so simple? <laughs> would that it was so simple? Yeah, no. <laughs> but he definitely couldn't there's have. There's no way that guy... Could have well that actor uh, played young Han Solo. That's young Han Solo who played Hobie yes, Doyle. Yes. Um, one of my uh, oh man that that scene where he's like Hobie Doyle, you're a communist too. I have seldom laughed so hard. But that's uh that's not a war movie and it's not the movie we're discussing. So right since the poor guy died young and out of respect for his family let's give him the benefit of the doubt that he would have become a better actor and let's move on from robert francis also because we need to not make this a three-hour episode and let's actually get into the film but 
<laughs> I I understand, but there's the I feel like the movie suffered for his performance. He's supposed to be a guy that we're supposed to be on board with and get behind and see things from his perspective to a certain extent, I think as as like he's new to the cane, we're new to the cane. Yeah, he's green as hell. He's the audience surrogate. Exactly. That's why it worked for me. That's why his performance is interesting to me cuz I can totally get your frustration with it because i really didn't like him no he's not he's not likable sir i'm completely at fault but i tried my best but then as you watch him go through all these experiences i still don't really like him by the end because he still kind of seems like a privileged schmuck in some ways despite the horrible things he's gone through and right you know just as a person not somebody i want to hang out with but he He's still, I was very empathetic for him and very invested in his story. For a shot tone, he is not. If for anybody who's seen uh, Mutiny on the Bounty, uh, which mm. they reference in this movie, um, when he says he certainly is Navy, and then Fred McMurray says, well, so was Captain Bly. I was wondering what that reference was. Okay. That is a reference to a famous, It's well, It's it's been made into a movie at least twice possibly three times, Mm -hmm. but it's actually based on historical events in the British Navy. There was a tyrannical captain named captain Bly, who was like seriously a bad dude. Uh, And his crew mutinied on him and cast him and the loyal uh, sailors adrift in essentially a dinghy in the middle of the ocean uh, and turned pirate. And they like sailed off. Uh, Then, Captain Bly in this like little tiny ship that's overcrowded with the few soldiers that or the few sailors that stuck with him uh, with no food and no water navigated back to England in essentially a rowboat. That's uh, impressive. And then, <laughs> yeah, they were like, it was unbelievable that he did this, but he was still a garbage person. Um, and so Charles Lawton played him in the film, the the old film that won Best Picture in, I think, 32. Uh, Clark Gable played Fletcher Christian, who was the the head of the, the, the like the exec who ends up mutiny. Mr. Christian. And then, and then French Hottone played essentially the ensign figure. He was a midshipman, but he's like, joins the ship in the beginning and so on and so forth but we're gonna have to tally up all of the films that are not this film that we are talking about in this episode i know (laughs) i know so the thing that i found really interesting about the academy award nominations for this is that one of them was best supporting actor and one guess who do you guys think would be given that as best supporting i know the answer to this so i'm not gonna say okay i I also know so okay so it's tom tolly the commander that we first see in the beginning, the Commander DeVries. Captain Nipples. And I found that out after I watched the movie. And I was thinking back on it. And like while I was doing my notes right before I was rewatching parts of it. And I was like, I can definitely understand this. Because how the film bookends, opening with his command that seems so slapdash and very... Lackadaisical. Um, yeah. And just like, like he's just given up. Just like, whatever, fuck it, just fuck it. He was salty as shit, man. I loved his attitude. I mean, not. I'm not saying necessarily he was a good captain, but he was the, hilarious. Where, to watch. where his character grabbed me 
was when he takes the watch after turning down the watch. That is such a great character moment, and it fills in, like, so much other stuff. Yeah, let's get real. If Liam was ever going to be captain of a ship, like, that's probably kind of who he'd end up being, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, not even wearing a shirt, just like, eh, yeah, whatever. Just, I'm wearing I'm a towel here. right now. <laughs> old man tits just hanging out all over the place, just, bah, well... Are you going to give me your orders or are they a military secret? <laughs> there are definitely going to be several times in this where with all the research and reading that I've done, I still don't know the answers to certain questions about this. So starting kind of at the beginning, um, we have a um, commissioning or college graduation of all the naval officers. And I, I first of all, I was pleasantly surprised that so much of this happens in the Bay Area. So there's lots of cool shots of the Bay Bridge, which is a bridge I I'm on like five or six days a week during non weird pandemic uh, schedule. Um, and so one would assume when you see a graduating class of Naval officers like that, usually it's like the Naval Academy, which of course is in Annapolis. And so we knew it wasn't that. So I was trying to figure out where the hell they were at. And I don't know the history of Cal Maritime. I know that now Cal Maritime grads tend to be like, that is a, um, oh man, what is the word I'm looking for? It's for, you know, non-military, like commercial um, ship captains, but it's a military academy. So like, they're not going into the Navy, but they're just maritime. Yeah, it's a maritime academy. It's like the merchant marine kind of. Exactly. That's exactly who they are. Um, and so, yeah, someone's going to have to write in. If you guys don't know the answer, hopefully someone can set us straight on exactly where we think they were at and what they were graduating from. Because they seem to be in the Navy and going into the Navy, but the location doesn't make sense. I wonder if that was a period, if that was a, a period switch during World War II, like to handle the influx of officers. Just to get out. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, because you're certainly, you know, the Bay Area was a... You have the facilities. Mm-hmm, right. Busy port, lots of ships. So it makes sense that maybe they were just going to start their career there. Um, but I found that That's interesting. That's especially interesting because I, I wanted to know how the Navy felt about this movie because it shows hmm. a mutiny. And I think something I've been meaning to bring up on the show is how... I think it's always good to examine how the U.S. government is, well, how any government, because we'll talk about more in just U.S., but um, feels about how things are being filmed. And with this movie, the only way that the Navy would support it is if they put that disclaimer at the beginning. Right. And that's, and then they just, here you go, you can have all of this stuff. And I was watching and I realized 1954, like so much of this stuff was probably, almost all of it, I'm sure, was just stuff the navy was like here we go this is old world war ii stuff you know it's all five years six years old maybe and it it all looks a lot of the reviews talked about how accurate everything was and how real it feels yeah it was one of that that nice golden period uh where they had all the stuff that they were filming on still lying about so um but yeah they have to have that disclaimer that no there's never been a mutiny in the U.S. Navy, so this is fiction as fuck. That particular story is fiction, but a lot of it is based on experiences that Herman Woke had um, in his two different, uh, I think he had two different tours of duty during World War II, and then a lot of this is based on other stories that he heard about from the Navy. And This book won the Pulitzer, didn't it? I think so. 
uh, let me just fill in the the nomenclature here because I was like, oh, I wonder who was Cain and or what was the Cain, you know, etc. Um, first of all, interestingly, uh, I want to thank Mike Andrews for the research on this episode. Um, Mike's like employee of the month. He's been pulling in research for I think every episode we've done so far. He, not the only one, but he was the only one on this film, so very helpful. He's gonna get that <laughs> that parking space outside of the Danger Close building. I'm gonna multiply his salary by like times twelve. So, um, so yeah. So interestingly, these sh- the ships portrayed here, or this ship being portrayed, was basically it's called a DMS, so Destroyer Minesweeper, and if the um, number and code on the side of the ship were accurate, which it was not, it would have said DMS like 168 or something like that. And so these are destroyers, older destroyers from World War One that were converted into minesweepers for World War II. Um, I think they did something like 20 of them. And then they stopped that practice. And later on, they started commissioning minesweepers, you know, built from purpose built for that. Um, and and I so I think now they never said in the movie USS Kane. They always said DMS Kane. Would it be USS DMS Kane or is it just DMS Kane? No. So the USS USS is United States ship. So the same way um, British ships are HMS Her Majesty's ship. Every ship is going to get a USS designation, but DMS is the category of ship that it is. So this is a destroyer minesweeper. You have aircraft carriers. I'm not a Navy guy, so I can't rattle a bunch of them off, but every ship has a designation. I was curious about that because like, they never said the USS. It was just like, I guess that's sort of understood, but like, oftentimes you'll hear ships referred to as like specifically USS such and such. But this one was always DMS Kane whenever they gave it the abbreviations in the beginning. Right. But that you you would see that in writing. No one's going to call it the DMS Kane unless someone's asking what's the designation of the ship. And then ships usually have a class as well. A certain style of like aircraft carrier, for example, with certain capabilities during a certain time period. And they build X number of them. This is like the Halsey class, for example, carrier. Um, and so that's also a thing that happens with uh, ships. But again... I'll just let some angry sailor write in and tell us all about how we effed up the uh, Navy nomenclature. Since, you know, Marine Corps just uses the Navy as taxis. So we don't really we don't really need to know all that crap. <laughs> yeah, taxi service. <laughs> just right? kidding. I love the Navy. So if there are any cranky Navy men on, on, on our audience that can answer a question for me, uh, for my son, actually. I had the question, but of course my son, who's 10 years old, uh voiced it before like as i was thinking it and that's when they go over to the carrier and like the bugle sounds and like all hell breaks loose and guys are just oh, like yeah running yes. back and forth across the deck what's like, going on what the, he's like what are they doing and i was like <laughs> i don't know but it's some kind of drill and then they're all like standing there and then it's like then they're dismissed and they all run back. Like, I'm like, I have no idea how that's supposed to be orderly or why, like, where were those guys hiding before they all just the sudden like popped up out of nowhere and just started scrambling and playing red Rover. Um, Oh man. Yeah. I can't speak in too much technical detail on this, but generally the way ships are run is first of all, Every sailor has an MOS, right? Military occupational specialty. In the Navy, it's called your rate. So you'll have a rank, 
like E6, E5, whatever, and then your rate. So, for example, in air traffic control, we, the our school was Navy Marine Corps mix. So I remember the ACs, uh, which is the designation for the air traffic control rate in the Navy for enlisted. And like you'd have like AC1, AC2, AC3. Those are uh, – it's a petty officer um, – first second and third class but you call them you, yeah it's actually what you would address them as hey ac1 ac2 whatever um and so on a ship you're going to do a job that has to do with your mos whether you're a controller and you're talking um airplanes down onto the deck of the aircraft carrier or your boatswain's mate or you know a million other um rates that are on a ship but you also have other duties right you might um have a certain amount of time that you have to do mess duty or clean up over here or whatever and you also have designated positions when you go to general quarters so for things like a fire on board or a compartment gets flooded and the ship you know is needs to be that compartment needs to be cut off so the ship doesn't sink or you're being attacked by the enemy Everyone ha- so so that it can be organized and in when shit hits the fan, everybody knows exactly where they need to go. Um, everybody has second and third tier positions that they're going to take in that particular situation. So it's like you're going to go man this gun over here, and your buddy is going to be loading ammo for that gun, and you're you know everybody puts their helmets on, everybody puts their life jackets on, yeah. So. There's a lot of stuff like that that happens on a ship because things need to be really organized in order to move. And on a modern aircraft carrier, um, you can have like 5,000 people on board. So you're talking about a floating city with some people who are never even going to run into each other. And so to be able to switch conditions, whether it's because you're being attacked, whether it's because you're starting to launch aircraft or whatever it is, you have to have an organized way to be able to call that out. Um, and have everyone run to exactly where they need to go. So the running around may seem disorganized, but all those people are going to a specific place or going back to where they came from before the drill. Another thing you see that is continued in modern um, aircraft carriers is all the uh, shirt colors being different. So like yellow shirts, green shirts, red shirts. Um, those are all deck personnel. And again, I'm not an expert. Don't want to be a red shirt. <laughs> That's bad news. Uh, nerdy references abound. And um, again, I'm not a technical expert on the Navy and I haven't served on any ships. So I don't know what all the jobs assigned to them are. But those colored shirts are definitely people that are working on deck around the aircraft. There's a catapult team. Those guys run the catapults that are launching um, the aircraft and the... Um, you know, the wire that's going to catch the planes as they land, all that stuff. It's all, you know, the military is always organized, but life on a ship is very strictly organized. Everyone knows what they're doing. I have to say, it never ceases to amaze me when I, whenever I happen to remember in, or in times like this, that I am reminded of the fact that like these fucking planes are launched with a catapult mm-hmm. and just caught with a wire. Mm-hmm. Like w- what kind of Rube Goldberg shit is this that like, it's just like, well, if we just fling the ship, <laughs> we just fling the plane off of the ship, it'll just work now. Yep. It's like when, when I had like those slingshot rubber band toy airplanes that you'd like hold back and pull that shit never worked. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the basic reasoning behind that is because the deck of, or part of the deck of the aircraft carrier serving as a runway, um, you're making 
takeoffs and landings on a extremely short runway. So the time to build up speed to actually get lift and the t- and conversely the time to brake and stop is all super short and that's why they have to do that. That's why carrier landings are super violent and pilots describe it. You can read it in the literature as essentially it's the same force as if the plane was hanging and then dropped from a two-story building. Like that's the load that you're taking down. Because when you watch even modern aircraft land on aircraft carriers, I mean, they're stopping on a dime when they catch that cable. Um, So yeah, but anyways, back to the cane, since we're not overall going to be talking about aircraft carriers. Um, So yeah, interrupt me, Katie, if you wanted to jump in on this, but the author had served on the USS Zane and the USS Southern, which are both DMSs. So they were both destroyers, minesweepers. Zane rhymes with cane. I wonder where he got the name. (laughs) Exactly. And then... um, the so i guess he was also on the uss hull i think because it talks about it and he wasn't there for this incident he um he you know changed duty station or changed ships before the incident happened with the uss hull but the uss hull was one of three ships in december of 44 that were in a typhoon in the pacific and the hull rolled over onto its side and they and they lost the ship essentially so 202 crew were lost at sea and never found or you know killed in action as you would say in another uh, environment and i think 60 survived um and i think there's probably books written about this separate incident but uh, captain j marks was the captain of this ship and similarly to the events that we see in the quote-unquote mutiny um on the cane he kind of froze up made some bad calls the xo on the ship was protesting and telling him you know he was gonna get everyone killed and he's doing it wrong um and yet you know they ended up being in a storm that they shouldn't have been in which halls admiral halsey was blamed for this later when the navy did an investigation he wasn't reprimanded um but they put the blame on the admiral so Mark's kind of got away with that in the sense that he was never disciplined in the Navy for what happened. He did sadly die by suicide in 1986 at age 71. So people speculate Damn. that the the trauma of having lost all those sailors on his watch as part of his um, you know incompetence at command really weighed on him the rest of his life. And we're talking about a Naval Academy graduate, so smart guy you know not everybody can make it through the naval academy that's a tough school um but you know it just goes to show and i'm not uh, yeah, yeah and there were similar stories i think the bogart character um Quig, this real captain of the hull did a lot of similar things in terms of you know discipline and hygiene and how your uniforms are kept and that kind of thing it it is important um Mostly because the idea being if you're not disciplined enough to have good hygiene and shave and tuck your shirt in and like keep your uniform in order, then how can we count on you to keep these other important things in order, such as making sure guns are cleaned and lubricated and everything's in working order. So it's just a thing that starts at the bottom and works its way up to the top to important tasks that that's how you run a literally a well-oiled machine. But there's a balance there and especially as a new captain coming on, which I think in on the hull there was a similar situation where he was replacing someone else. You know, they come on, it's like getting a new boss at work or me getting a new manager in the FAA it works the same way. They come on, they kind of see what's going on and they're like, 
I'm gonna place I'm gonna make this place run straight, you know. And so they're calling out all the shit and shoes aren't polished and shirts aren't tucked in. And that's fine to a certain extent, but like anything else, if you lay too into the discipline on stupid stuff, and then in combination you show that you're not capable of doing your job, your real job that matters when shit hits the fan, that's when you're going to get this environment where people are going to lose respect for your authority. Um, and if there's going to be a mutiny on a ship, like that's kind of the perfect scenario for it to happen. I'm, the fact that the U.S. Navy has never had a mutiny is not correct, and there actually is one. But as you can imagine, the Navy's not going to advertise they that. They don't talk about it a whole lot. In 1842, there was a mutiny uh, uh, on the USS Summers, which is a brig, so a, a prison ship. Mutiny was unsuccessful, and three of the mutineers were tried and executed. So Navy took care of that one, but that was the sort of unadvertised mutiny that officially has happened in the U.S. Navy. Now, was that the, that, I I have no idea if you, if you know, but like, if a, there's a mutiny on a prison ship, like, did the guards mutiny or like, was it the, was it the, the staff of the ship that mutinied? That's actually, or a, was it like a prison break? That's actually a really great question. I don't know the answer to that. We'll have to look that up or have someone. Cause I feel it. like could they could way. have been. If 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 it was like a prison break that was like called a mutiny, then like maybe they could get off with the technicality and say no, that one doesn't count. They were prisoners. I, I'm also not familiar with how a brig ship would have been run in the mid 1800s. Meaning, meaning, probably pretty brutally. Well, no, that's not what I mean though. Uh, what I mean is there's a lot of work to be done on a ship, and so you would think logic would tell me that a brig ship would be run in a way that you're not just keeping everyone in cells. You just have really tight control over them, but you're already on a ship. There's no escaping. Mm. So you're going to have different rules and maybe your more dangerous elements might be in handcuffs or something like that. But these people are likely walking around and working their asses off. I doubt they're just sitting around in a cell because... Welcome to Con Air. <laughs> right. Or, or just like any other, uh, if you look at um, Cool Hand Luke or other situations like that, like a chain right. gang, like certainly if if you can put prisoners to work as the state, you're going to. So on a ship, you know, damn well, those prisoners were working. So, and, yeah. So, yeah. So, but meaning that in relation to Liam's question, the prisoners are also kind of the sailors. Obviously, there's a difference between them and the people who are not prisoners and are in charge, but it's quite possible that you would call it a mutiny simply because they're all sailors, like they're all workers on the ship, but we'll have to look that up. I'm not 100% yeah, sure. Yeah, it's like Amistad was not a mutiny. Right? Like, that's... That's a bit that, different, though. Yeah, that's it's different, but like, you know, there are people who are uh, captive on the ship. Uh, not there because they want to be. Now, I have a quick question, if you know, Dan, because it seems to me that I, I've remembered being told regarding facial hair in the Navy that there's kind of an old tradition going back that I don't know if it's written into the, the Navy Code of Conduct or the, the, the articles of the Navy, but the, um, there are the regulations, but from... Uh, what I've heard is that when you're in the Navy, if your captain makes you shave, you have to shave. But if you have a captain that lets you grow a beard, 
you are then allowed to have a beard until you shave it. Interesting. Or that, something along those lines. That's a that's a good question. I, I certainly can't speak for this time period. Um, and again, I wasn't in the Navy, so I don't know the particulars of that. I know that um, in the Marine Corps, for example, anybody with a beard in modern times was because they had an excuse to have that beard. So... For example, it's really common for um, like African American guys who have uh, kind of tend to have sensitive skin and they get a lot of shaving bumps from shaving. If it was bad mm-hmm. enough, you could get an excuse from medical and you were allowed to have a beard because of sensitive skin. So that's one thing. Yeah. Um, also, you know, you depending on the unit, etc., a certain amount of facial hair, mustaches have certainly almost always been allowed um, in the U.S. military, but. If you're going to have a mustache, there's all this specific regulation and it has to be, <laughs> you know, it has to be within the corners of your mouth and it has to be above your top lip and it can only be so long and it has to be separated from your nose hair. And if it and, looks you know. creepy, you have to get rid of it. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. You're not allowed to drive the white van with your mustache. But but you are correct in the sense that if someone's going to have a beard on the ship, it is damn well because the captain is allowing it because you're not going to get away with that and just walk around doing whatever the hell you want, especially with something like that that sticks out from a distance. You know, you're going to get called out on that quick. Same with haircuts. You see the captain talking about, I want every sailor to get a haircut. And, and again, certain certain services are more or less strict. Sailors tend to have longer hair a little bit. This is relatively speaking. Everybody still has military haircuts, but in the Marine Corps, you had to get your haircut once a week. If you showed up Monday morning without a fresh haircut, like you were getting sent home and you had to go get a haircut. The Navy's a little more lenient. Um, you know, the Marines should have like a nickname just for the fact that they all have their haircuts that way. Yeah. They, if they haven't come up with that, they probably should. It's a good way to identify them. Yeah, it's not like <laughs> Marines have any nicknames. No, not no. at all. They've really got to work on that. I mean, I know they're a young arm of the military, but... None of them are related to their, to their you know, haircuts. <laughs> no. Not as young as the Air Force. True. True. Wait, what what were you saying about young, Katie? That the the Marines are one of the younger arms of the military in the US. It's not like they're the Wrong. army. Am I? Oh. Here's where you're gonna school me. The Marine Corps was formed <clears throat> excuse let me get on my soapbox. The Marine Corps was <laughs> uh founded in seventeen seventy five. Thank holy you. Sh- so. Holy shit. So it's older than the US. Yes. And I think the army also has a similar age. I think the army was also formed in 1775. So I'm not saying the Marine Corps is the eldest, but by far, well, I guess the Space Force is the newest. But the yeah. Force, Shut the fuck the up. The Air Force is 46. The, there is no. <laughs> there technically is a Space Force. I hate that concept. Well, my apologies to every Marine I just offended. I guess I wasn't as aware because it's just not something that's really talked about until like World War II. You know, there's not a lot of them. They're fairly what you might call few. But of the few of them that there are, I hear they're they're also very proud. How about uh how about like random bit part from a young Lee Marvin before he got all haggard looking? That was crazy. Yeah. I, I was His like meatball. And he's a good looking oh dude God. too. He oh yeah. Very fan of myself, ladies, fan of myself. <laughs> when 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 yeah, when he's like horsing around when they're like all having to strip down and he was like i swallowed the key it was just like what just what just happened to lee martin yeah. i did you couldn't have predicted who he became 
did he get mildly fabulous in that moment? Like, what just happened with Lee Marvin? I don't know, but I love that uh, his name was Meatball. That's just a great nickname. Yeah, that was hilarious. <laughs> uh, but he apparently was actually ended up being one of their Navy advisors as far as, like, he's like, this this doesn't look right. Because I guess he was had recently served in the Navy. Yep, Lee Marvin was in the Marine Corps. God damn it, you guys. Oh, I'm sorry. You're making me talk about the Marine Corps like every five seconds. He was People at, are gonna get uh, sorry, he was, he was at sea. I apologize, Marine Corps. <laughs> <laughs> but he was one of the people that was saying this is right this is wrong you need to change this you need to change mm, that's interesting i love that there's uh, you know he be, went on to become such a big actor and well for a very definition of big but and that's what his biggest contribution to the movie was i mean this bit part is great but mm -hmm. that's a, such a hugely important part of getting a war movie right especially one set in world war ii on the navy where everything very much revolves around being accurate the movie really sets up what's coming very well like with how like how it starts out showing this fresh-faced naval graduate and then he goes on to the ship and how amazing is that point where he steps on he's like oh this is such a beautiful ship and they're like mm, no your ship's mm, over there my friend classic filmmaking that's like <laughs> i i feel like you've you could have seen that in like 20 other movies that almost exact exchange yes. um, maybe not with a naval ship but it's it, that is that is a classic bait and switch yeah and then you get to see so much from this perspective of like we're obviously supposed to know from his mind that like when he gets there you know the cane is very disorganized and led by a captain who's not not really into regulations but then He's also shown and talked about as like an idiot. Like you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know anything. Just keep your mouth shut. And so much of the time is what his other, the higher up officers are telling him. And so for me, I'm questioning, I'm like, okay, what is he getting wrong here? Cause it feels a little bit, his perspective is unreliable as to whether or not these are normal things to happen. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. And it's, it's, like that was the the one point that I was kind of on board with him is when uh you know he's looking around and going like this isn't normal and or right with with Queeg. Uh and everybody's like, You don't know what normal is. And it's like, oh man, yeah, he kinda like if the new guy knows it's not normal, you should you know, maybe understand that like, it's like, he's, he's right on that one. Um, so I felt his frustration as being like the new kid who doesn't know what he's talking about and, and not being taken seriously because of it. But I thought that was, uh, yeah, it's cause he, he doesn't know his elbow from his asshole to a certain extent. Right. Like he thinks that seagulls are planes. Oh man. Yes. And, like, what about that scene where he's talking, like, right before um, the captain tells, Captain uh, DeVries tells him that he's been um, reassigned. He calls in uh, Ensign Keith and needles him some more and then essentially says, it's okay, tell me what you think of me. What do you think of me? And what do you think of my ship? And then he says, well, you're in luck. I've been transferred and you're getting a new captain. And then we see Bogart come on the ship. Like, how likely is that, that someone would allow their, you know, newest ensign to talk to them like that? 
I mean, I think they're just trying to highlight how few of fucks DeVries has left. And okay. he just really cannot wait to get off that ship. And honestly, if you're a genuine, honest person, just like in any other job, really, if you tell someone, like, just speak freely and really tell me what you think, and then they do, and then you have a bad reaction, like, that's on you. So, to be honest, yeah, like, I think... And I also think Keith was pretty well contained. He didn't, like, berate him or do or say anything beyond his own very limited experience in the Navy, because it would have been very easy to write him off and be like, what the hell do you know? You've been in the Navy two, you know, two weeks or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I think if you run into a captain who is wearing a towel and is just letting his chest hanging out and obviously just does not give a shit about anything and he's like yeah no you go ahead tell me what you think nipples all the way down maybe he'll uh slap you or something but i don't yeah i don't think that he would have uh i don't think it's unrealistic for the what what keith told him so so if i'm remembering that scene correctly though that was um after like he called him in at first to be like dude you could have like you could have gotten me court-martialed yes. for not, for not, you know, decoding that message. Um, so I think it was kind of a, uh, I took it to be uh, uh, like, yes, tell me what you think of me, but like setting him up for like, well, you have a new captain now and your new captain is going to have fucks to give. Whereas I do not. So if you do this to your new captain, uh, he's going to murder you. <laughs> so like, there's like, yeah. no, there's, there's no way that like, if you were going to screw up like this, I am the, oh, I am the best person you could have screwed up this with. Don't do this anymore. You need to shape up because I know that you feel very entitled to certain things and certain treatment and, uh, you see a lot of problems with what I'm doing, but you need to take all of that and turn it inward and look at what an asshole you are. Because there is a new captain coming, and I know that makes you happy, but seriously, shape up. Yeah, I, th- I think the other interesting thing about the way DeVries runs his ship is we don't really get to see, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think we really get to see too much of the performance the results and the performance of the cane under him. So no, we don't. There's it's it's, anecdotal, right? Where like, they're always like the Jones never beats them. Mm -hmm. The Jones being that, that other minesweeper. Right. So Uh, it's, it's quite possible that through his sort of nonchalant and maybe less disciplined and lenient command of the ship because he's still like authoritative it's it's not that he doesn't give a shit in the sense that he's not gonna you know tell the sailors what to do steve that was the lousiest performance i've ever seen tell the men to get the lid out so one of the things that like one of the big criticisms of this movie that i wondered how you guys felt about it is that and this was a criticism that i believe both variety and the new york times when this movie came out talked about was how it felt very anticlimactic that like the courtroom scene that we look at now as like the big moment in that film at the time it was looked at as like well we already saw this guy lose his mind we already saw him go through all of this terrible things we've seen these events so this courtroom drama just didn't feel as impactful 
Whereas now I was watching it and I, I read these after because I never read reviews before I watch a movie, a new movie. Um, I was like, I don't know. I don't know that I agree with that because I thought the events that happen are very interesting in and of themselves. But then the courtroom scene for me, all of the tension and the drive comes from how are these men going to react now? We've seen how they react, you know, in all of these other situations, but this is life or death for two of their friends or enemies, depending on who you are. And especially in regards to Fred McMurray's character, Lieutenant Tom Kiefer, because he totally does a 180 and betrays everybody, including himself. Yeah, that was that was a trip. I, I didn't. I, I was confused by his motivations. You didn't see that one coming? No, he uh, he it, he knew that if he gave testimony uh, honestly, he would find himself on trial for mutiny as well. Yep. Under Article 186, I think Jose Ferrer says it is, of Navy regulations. Yep, he would have incriminated himself. He would have incriminated himself as uh, being the one who uh, incited the mutiny. Uh, and so he... he Went all uh, yellow. Cowardly, yeah. And so I guess that, in the plot, that's kind of the hinge point that makes everyone look down upon the mutineer, the two mutineers, even though when you watch the scene at the time, it honestly seems completely justified. I mean, in terms of the mistakes that Quig is making... Um, and the lack of responsibility that he takes for his mistakes. You know, when they do the 360 degree right turn in the training exercise and they run over the cable and he just like completely lies and pretends like that didn't happen. It's fake news. Right. Um, and yeah. And then, you know, the, the prosecutor coming after them like that. And I was like, man, you could argue whether these guys made a mistake or not, but this isn't like, it's not like they're like, I'm tired of not having good food. I'm going to mutiny. It's like they, they were trying to save the ship and we're watching this ship. By the way, I want to talk a little bit about the special effects because that, I think, pretty obviously a model that was getting tossed around looked pretty good. The scale of the waves and everything else. Uh, I don't think it came off like very obviously as a model. Right? Exactly. Yeah. No, that looked tight. That's the hardest kind of special effects to pull off is models in water. Just because of the way water works and we can tell when we're watching it. It's like, oh, this isn't the right. doesn't look right. Yeah, often the scale just looks off. Just ask the Loch Ness Monster. <laughs> right. Um, and uh, yeah, that was one of, the, one of the few like inaccuracies, I think, is you see men getting swept overboard. But Navy policy during a storm like that, if the ship's going through a storm, is that no one would be on deck. You like... Yes! I shut down, you know, close the hatches and secure everything. And the only time you'd be on deck is if you're abandoning ship. Well, it's funny is they show the hatches all getting like battened down. Uh, like they, they seal everything up and, and secure them. Um, but is there another way to get to and from the bridge without going outside? That's what I wondered. Cause there's just, he's just sending people going in and out. And I was like, how are these guys not getting... If it is a World War One ship, there might not be, but I don't know. 
Right. And that would also yeah. depend on how much are they shooting on a set versus how much are they shooting on the most likely World War II ship that they actually shot the film on that was standing in for one of these reconfigured World War One ships. Um, but differently from something like something more modern like Greyhound, um, I doubt. I didn't read about it, but I doubt that they built a set of like the bridge. I well, I don't know. What do you guys think? Well, no, I would, I, I'd be willing to believe that they built the that the bridge scene was probably shot on a soundstage. Yeah, I guess just to give the cameras more room to work, and for the the rain and the lighting in order to get that kind of lighting. For the rain, the lighting, the the sound, and things like that. It's a two million dollar production. They're not shooting day for night. Yeah, there there are times that they that you see something like that, and it's way more obvious than it is in this film. Mm-hmm. So it was done incredibly well. Uh, I will say that, like the the uh, when they shift from studio work to location work, it's really well done, and it's a pretty seamless transition. Um, so well done, Kane Mutiny. But I, I am pretty sure that that this was that that those interiors were on a soundstage. Okay, yeah, that would make sense just because of the logistics. Um, yeah, and, and by the way, I, I know um, I'm forgetting his last name, but one of our listeners uh, and contributors, Callum, uh, has served on modern minesweepers. I think in the British Navy. So hopefully he can write in and tell us a little bit more about. Um, either the technology they use now or the history of how they used to do it. But um, if you read a little bit in the research, they talk about paravanes and kites. And I was like, what the hell is that? And how does this work? And so I did a little digging and looked into it. And a paravane is essentially a water kite. So it's designed um, to work underwater, meaning that it's going to flow at a certain depth. Mm Mm-hmm and carry a line or a cable and uh i'm definitely not an expert on mines but from the little bit i was reading about how mines work um i think that generally mines are designed to float but then they're anchored down with a cable to the seafloor um and because usually they're near shore right you're protecting a harbor protecting a island landing something like that so it's they're usually not in very deep water and um, the way these minesweepers uh, ran their operation is they would drag a paravane behind them from the stern of the ship, and it would then um, hook the cable and clip the cable to the mine and allow the mine to float to the top of the water, where it could then be destroyed either through remote activation by running something into it or just by naval gunfire. The the dis- other destroyers or battleships would be far enough away, they could just fire into the mines and blow them up. Um, so that's kind of how they went about it, um, as well as launching... I think they would also launch depth charges, possibly, from the side and blow up mines, but that's a little bit of what's actually going on on the ship, which is interesting in itself. I'd love if someone could tell us more about um, how that's run. Yeah, we can include it in surplus ordinance, which for those of you who don't follow our Facebook group, we always post all of our research and anything extra that we come across a couple days after the podcast gets posted. So please feel free to join our Facebook group. It's Danger Close Podcast. Or you can always check our website where we post it as well, which is dangerclosepod.com. Let's see, moving on to uh, things we should probably shit on a little bit. So Liam will probably run. Well, what did you guys think of the prosecutor? Oh, love to hate him. Love to hate him. So good at just being that like oily, 
irritating. Like, oh, you're just taking everything the wrong way, bastard. So I thought it was great performance. Great performance, although I just, but I couldn't relate to it. I was like, why does this guy have such a hard on for these dudes? I just didn't get why he was coming after him so hard, talking about them being hung and how if he had a choice. Also, all this choice, um, like all these roles of prosecutor and defense attorney in, in the military, they're all assigned. So you don't have a choice. You're a JAG officer in the Navy, for example. Like you get handed the case and you're working that case on whatever side they tell you you're working it on. So he wouldn't have actually had that choice in real life. But yeah, he was he was a little bit of a hard read. It's it's almost like, um, I don't know, like he had a personal stake in it and he was really upset about what they did, kind of. Katie, you had mentioned... Uh, that this was adapted to a play uh, that was, did you say it ran on Broadway? It did. It did. Right. Like a couple of years, maybe not even that much before this movie came out. And it was focused almost exclusively on the courtroom. It's, it's called the, the Kane mutiny court martial is the name of yes. the play. Uh, and the reason that I know that is because I actually played the prosecutor uh, in a production at one of my local community theaters here in Pittsburgh, when I was in high school, um, I played, amazing. I played that part and I was supposed to play like the ensign who comes in and testifies. Uh, but the guy who was playing the prosecutor had to drop and I'm tall. So they were like, do you think you could get, do you, like you're here can you play this part and then we'll like find some other kid to play the, 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 the smaller part. And I was like, yeah, I can do that. I'm like 17. <laughs> I'll play this prosecutor. Shit. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I have a great deal of empathy for, uh, for Chally. That's his name. Uh, Chally. And he only gets name dropped once, but yep. uh, I think he's really a very good dude who uh, has a lot of uh, honor and a lot of good intentions and pure motivations in his heart. And uh, he's trying to do a job. But my problem with this movie is that I always thought that the prosecutor was just too, he was too mean about it. He, he did not have those pure intentions in his heart that Shally really does uh, that I feel like maybe a, Maybe a different actor who shall remain nameless could have could have brought to that to that particular role a little more a little more pathos. And so the characters have different names in the play versus the film because he's Greenwald in the in the film. No, you're, that's the defense. The defense attorney is. Greenwald. Oh, you're right. I'm sorry. I was the prosecutor. Challenge. Gotcha. Gotcha. See, so the, the the defense attorney comes after him so hard that I like. As almost associate him with prosecution just because of his attitude. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. He's very dismissive. Yeah, it was they. They actually wished by the end of it that I could have played both the prosecutor and the defense attorney because our defense attorney couldn't remember his lines uh, all the way through the run. So that was that was rough. Speaking of Jose Ferrer, like fucking love him. He is so great, and he's he rocks that. Um, drunk acting? Yes, he does. The, the drunk acting is fabulous, and that's very difficult to do. Um, he might have actually been tight. Like, I don't know. I don't want to cast aspersions, but like, man, he came in just talking a little bit too loud and enunciating a little bit too clearly. 
Like there was Waving. no there was no slurring. He he had a little wobble to his step. And it's like, that's a guy. It was subtle for sure. Oh, yeah. But he was just like, just a little tight, you know? Yeah. And I think like that first scene with him, he's very clear that he doesn't approve of them. And throughout the trial, up until Quig gets on the stand, he is pretty like, whatever. No questions. No questions. I love like his his opening line of dialogue he's like i'll be honest with you i've reviewed your case and i think what you've done stinks like that always gets a chuckle out of me (laughs) oh it's very mid-atlantic accent which was big in the 1950s uh acting scene (laughs) my mom was Uh, like people didn't talk like that (laughs) yes yes but they did in movies if you want to do anything about it i'll be outside i'm a lot drunker than you are so it'll be a fair fight. It's Jose Ferrer, and he just has such a distinctive voice. He does. And like his his performance is one that really takes, and his role in particular, is something that really takes the movie from one level to the next. Because the pros, or because the defense attorney is so obviously conflicted about their actions, and he does like an absolute devastating job by the end and you can see that it costs him something something significant to do that and he is very good at explaining his reasoning about what it's costing him but even with that i think the performance and the movie still leave it open to interpretation about whether or not he's right because that to me was the biggest question after the movie it was like was he right should the crew have supported him more should they have given into him and like coddled him and whatever, or should he be expected to deal with things? Like how much lenience do we give someone who has obviously gone through an intense amount of trauma and that has affected them to the point where they can no longer lead a ship. That's the complicated question. I think your opinion is going to be affected a little bit about whether you're in that courtroom, getting the summary of the strawberry debacle controversy from Queeg. Or whether you were one of the people in that room watching it happen, watching the um, like mess hand or whoever he was scooping Santa, I was like, this is insane. Like, this person is definitely off his rocker. Oh, man. I love watching Humphrey Bogart. I, I will never be satisfied into, with this episode until I get to just gush over Humphrey Bogart watching a ladle full of sand go from the can to the bowl and he's not seeing sand he's seeing strawberries and he's just like watching it go back and forth like a tennis match and like it's but it it looks so natural have any of you gentlemen an explanation for the quart of missing strawberries and humphrey bogart got uh he butted heads an awful lot with the with the new method acting that was that was coming into fashion in the 1950s um you know with the the advent of of brando and the like and and so a lot of people like from a modern lens think that his acting or like they see him in an old gangster picture or something like that and they think they know what an actor Humphrey bogart is but like he gets some like real like 
nuanced and detailed expressions, like just down, very naturalistic. And it always has that motivation in it. So like anybody who is, you know, uh, studies Stanislavski's system uh, or, you know, the, the method acting, uh, the motivation is kind of paramount. Um, and it's, and it's usually going to be, uh, the motivation is going to be internally uh, driven, but you also have a lot of uh, external sources that, that people tend to work with as far as their motivations go uh, that has like a little bit more of a blue collar workman like, well, if you're not, if you're not getting the character, chances are you're not wearing the right kind of shoes or, you know, like when you put the costume on, you, you start to get, uh, a, a better sense of the character. Um, this is like the Daniel, the Daniel day Lewis. I mean, I, I know that he's just a method actor, but it's like, that's what I think of when I think of the system described or the method described. Yeah. He's, he's, uh, he's very much like never break character. He's in that character. And a lot of it is find the perfect hat, you know, et cetera. Well, yeah, it's, uh, you know, there's, there's so many different ways to go about finding your character. And Stanislavski is usually a, a great starting off point, And it's something that, most people study or if you reference it most people like have heard of stanislavski and it yields some really excellent results because you get people like uh philip seymour hoffman is a straight stanislavski guy uh you know he's he knows what his character had for breakfast and things like that uh but uh if you listen to lauren bacall talk about doing her first movies with humphrey bogart uh and, you know, she, she made an entrance and the director was like, no, you did it wrong. You did it wrong. Uh, and Humphrey Bogart pulled her aside and said, Hey, what were you doing before, before you came through that door? And she said, I was waiting for him to call action. And he goes, no, not you. What was the character? Like your character wasn't coming, wasn't waiting for him to call action. Your character was doing something over there, brushing her hair or doing something. You, you were physically doing something. So figure out what that is and then come through the door. And then she was like, that was like my first great acting lesson from Humphrey Bogart. So you're, you're referring to this as a different technique from method acting. I'm assuming like, what does it have a name? It doesn't, it doesn't. It was just, and it was just acting and experience and going through it. Uh, and people think that there's this, uh, the, that there's a, a certain amount of, I don't know, snobbery that goes along with Stanislavski or method or, like people either like look down on method or they like adhere to it. But uh, really it's just to a certain extent, a form of logic about, and that's, I think how, how Humphrey Bogart would have, would have thought about it is just like, no, I mean, you're not you, you're this person. And this person was doing something. You're creating a world. You have to exist in it. What were you doing before you walked through the door? I don't think he gave a shit about like, you know, what happened to you in your childhood that made your character walk through the door that way. Um, but it's just like a much more utilitarian uh, scaling down of that type of mindset that just doesn't seem like, I don't think he thought it was anything special what he was doing necessarily, but 
I think he's one of the greatest film actors that's ever lived. Well, it allows him to, he starts his acting before they say action. He is already in that mindset. And I think hearing that story, it makes a lot of sense because you can, like, I can see that in how Bogart is always very much in his roles. He is the character, if you will. And in this in particular, like in the courtroom scene, because to me, there's two scenes in this. The two big ones for me that define his pathos is that scene where the typhoon is swirling around them and the mutiny actually happens. And you see his face. His face is just blank and frozen. And you can't tell if he's, you can't really tell what he's feeling. He could be terrified. He could just be completely numb. Like there's an unknowable quality to his facial expression. And that is more than anything, what convinces me that the mutiny is the right course because he's just disconnected from the moment. Mm -hmm. And then you see it again in the courtroom scene where he gets into talking about the strawberries and the key. And he just gets so into that, into that reaction. And you can see his character reliving his emotional state throughout that experience and then he reaches this point where he realizes he's gone too far and he just stops yep. and gives up. And you just see these tears glistening in his eyes. And I don't think he ever actually cries, Nope. but because that would have been horrifically disgraceful for a man in the fifties. Um, he just has this moment where it's almost like someone with dementia or, Alzheimer's realizing what they're going through and you see him having this moment of realization that he really has lost it and maybe they were right to mutiny and all of that goes through his face and I think the shot lasts four or five seconds mm -hmm. and it is the biggest emotional punch of the movie for me with Bogart and it's what just impact impacted me and it's the thing i think of now when i think of that movie is like, wow bogart really got that right oh just, yeah like his lower eyelids all like wrinkly from like just his hard lived life and he just it like it, but they're like sort of like twitching almost uh the 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 crew uh the the film crew actually gave him kind of like a standing at like they just started applauding when when they finished filming that that scene because he just like knocked everybody's socks off right and that's one of the reasons like that's why i wanted to talk about that part because when i read that thing in the reviews saying that like oh this is a bit a bit much and i was like but that's like the most emotionally powerful thing is where he realizes who he's become it's not that the crew does, it's when he loses it and realizes it. And I, I gotta say, there's there's a little bit of, um, I don't want to say extra impact, but I guess in a military setting, like in a scene full of military officers, in a courtroom, they're supposed to have a certain level of dignity, etc. I think seeing someone's humanity like that through their emotions almost carries a little extra weight because you could do a military courtroom drama and not have it be like, be a little bit more of a reenactment. Uh, I mean, I know it's fictional, but I'm saying more of a reenactment and a little more straightforward. But when you see, 
you know, Jack Nicholson finally break character and a few good men and start yelling in the courtroom. It's like, obviously that's what really gives you the scene and picks up that drama. And this is more subtle and there is no yelling, but you know, you have that again, that look of, we don't know if it's fear or realization or shock on Bogart's face, but the, and then the little, the two little steel balls that he plays with come out. And you can hear them. I love the. I don't know if that's Foley or. I imagine they might have just. Re- I think it's Foley. You think so? Yeah, they would have had to do Foley for something like that. The microphones were not okay. that good in the fifties. But I, I love the sound because we all know that sound. If you've ever seen a little toy on someone's desk or something, we know the sound of steel balls getting uh, slammed into each other and that or being rotated, and that's just like so great. That was my nickname in middle school. Steel balls. <laughs> Little steel balls, yeah. <laughs> it's like a, a put down and a compliment all at the same time. <laughs> Man, you betcha. I walk that line, baby. Hey, who's from Minnesota here? Who gets to use you? <laughs> <laughs> um, should we should we talk a little bit about the only just about the only woman in the film? Well, I guess there's two important women in this film. <laughs> yeah, the two the most important woman in his life and his girlfriend, the one that he's. <laughs> Having illicit sexual relations oh, with in man. Yosemite. Oh, God, that and and I kind of agreed with them in that it does feel with the criticisms of this that it does feel a little bit superfluous. Yes, but I think it's there for us to feel more for Keith and as a way to introduce us to him because the whole point and purpose of the scenes with him and his mom, him and his girlfriend. In, in the beginning and then in the middle and then at the very end are to show his character growth because he's too much of a baby and a mama's boy to introduce his girlfriend at his Navy graduation. But a horny mama's boy. He is a super horny He's like, boy. well, we don't have to go to a club. We could, yeah, uh, let's, you know, let's go, let's let's go, go to a hotel room instead. And right? you know, she's like, but will, will you marry me? And he's like, <laughs> Ooh, uh, and she's like, ready. "Well, I'm not ready to get married." It's like, then you're not ready to jump in here. So that's that's my 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 translation of that scene for everybody who doesn't speak 1950s dirty talk. Yes, yes, it, it was, and her being a a night a, a lounge singer, scandalous was a nightclub singer. I believe is what she's called. Um, would have been incredibly scandalous. Like the dress that she's wearing, might as well be a hooker. Is, it's so yes yes it's like one step above in the 50s like the dress that she's wearing is so unbelievably risque for the time period like because my husband and i watched this together and he he was like that's an interesting dress and i was like yeah those holes are just for show she's actually like as a nude cloth underneath it but like Mm -hmm. it's they really took some chances with this especially because this is a Hayes code movie so the fact that they even talk very obliquely about the fact that these two are having sex and that she's a a nightclub singer and all of that are those were big choices to make and so that's kind of why i gave it some respect i was like all right you're trying to make this character bigger depth and taking some risks but i don't know if it's necessary to tell the story may win played by may win Yes. Yeah, that was a that was a surprising like they were just like oh your name's already perfect we don't need to change it I just thought that was she yeah. cha- she changed it to to match the character which I I think uh, really uh, yeah oh wow that was that was a kind of a bold move on her part 
I think she was inspired by Gig Young in the 40s who did something similar to Great Effect, but mm-hmm. she uh mm-hmm. her name was I can't remember what her real name was, but her real name was not May Win. And there's a um so in it uh, not to not to plug my other podcast again, but on Fright Pub we we there's an episode where we uh go into some detail about uh the introducing credit and and what usually goes behind the introducing credit um because on you have a grand scale uh that uh, like on one end you have something like Lawrence of Arabia introducing Peter O'Toole and it's like you're about to witness the beginning of greatness and then on the other end of the spectrum you have something like this where it's like and introducing these hot young stars we're building up and you really want to create uh, some excitement around them uh but they never go anywhere <laughs> introducing for the last time you're gonna ever see this person <laughs> right? in his case uh there was a tragic reason in her case she just never really did anything else that was worth watching um but some other notable examples of this are the two kids from To Kill a Mockingbird mm. uh, who played uh, Scout and Jem. It's their only acting credit. They they were absolutely fantastic, but they just never did it again. But they both got the introducing credit. You also get people that you already know of for X, Y, or Z reasons that are now they're already famous for something else like introducing Jamie Lee Curtis. She was the son of, or the daughter of uh, Tony Curtis and Janet Lee. Or the, the other notable one that always just made me laugh was when Catherine McPhee was in that TV show after being on American Idol, but then she's, did a, a TV show where she was acting for the first time and it said introducing Catherine McPhee. And I'm like, you're not introducing Catherine McPhee. We know <laughs> who that is already. We just don't know if she can act. Is there an industry standard on when you use it? Not really. It's, I no. mean, it, it should be, it should be for a person's first movie. If they, if it's a, a noteworthy role, but the credits in this one are all kind of fucked anyway because Humphrey Bogart and Jose Ferrer are billed above Van Johnson, who is arguably the biggest role in the film. Well, it, here's the thing: is that all relates specifically to um, Screen Actors Guild rules, and those are very esoteric. In the same way that you know how you'll go into IMDb and like sometimes this totally random person is listed first. Like that all has to do with screen actors guild rules and all of that and how much people are getting paid and that all affects. And also why Jack Nicholson was billed first for playing the Joker in Batman. And it was (laughs) Michael Keaton who played Batman got billed second. (laughs) I got a question about this, which is going to be again, completely unrelated to this film, but because it's a very specific topic that you guys know a lot about. Here's one that always drives me nuts. I can always, I can understand when it's, scrolling vertically or listed vertically that it's like okay whoever's number one obviously is the highest paid actor or whatever screen actors guild rules there are like they're getting quote-unquote top billing 
What I don't yes. understand is when they then make the poster for the film and you have, uh, let's say in this example, Humphrey Bogart on the top left in the name and then Jose Ferrer's name and then Van Johnson, except that the design of the poster is such that all the actors are scrambled. And so the person under the name is not the actor listed above them. Does nobody else give a shit that that doesn't make any sense? And even the actor that his name is on the third dude's head and the other dude's name is above, like that just seems so fucking weird to me. So I can answer this for you. Okay, actually. Please. I've been, Th- this- I've been wondering my whole life. <laughs> So here's here's what how those things happen. And they have nothing those have nothing to do with the Screen Actors Guild because that's all decided by marketing. And that is why it does that. Because the marketing folks, like who's this it's decided who's gonna be on the poster is done by the marketing sure. team. How the poster's gonna be constructed, how it's gonna be set up, Fair. all designed by the marketing team. And so when you see stuff like that, it's because the marketing team didn't get their shit together. <laughs> because if you look at the original Kane Mutiny poster, um or broadsheet or whatever you want to call it um there's a couple of pictures kind of in the background of scenes from the film and then there are four boxes and you see a picture of each actor so there's mm-hmm. bogart Ferrer, blah, blah 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 so yeah that stuff is all like you can officially laugh at that for like marketing you failed and and that's maybe i i was only using it as an example because i didn't want to start yet again talking about some other film but it's something you see really commonly as if and my assumption was that left to right at least in western society left comes first and so left is the spot Mm -hmm. that that up is taking in a vertical list and so if tom cruise is top billing tom cruise is getting that top left spot on three names that are in a row at the top regardless of whose face is going under there usually the big one is actually in the center that's usually the biggest draw is that so what i find is is interesting is in opening credits you don't see it often but it always tells me that there was something going on in the negotiations contract negotiations in the background when you have two big stars that are playing opposite each other and one is on the top of the screen on the right and the other one is lower on the screen but on the left i feel Mm -hmm. like that's some kind of compromise that they do where one is on the right but one is on the left and they just instead of being equal so that you read this guy is better than this guy then you have them like sort of offset so it balances out. That's also a design decision, honestly. It's it's a way of constructing your design so that you can have a dynamic perspective. Exactly. But also actors do have uh, thoughts and opinions. Oh, yes. And their agents will not let so-and-so get. And just as oh, far yeah. as like contract goes, uh, I did uh, a production with the theater company that uh, that I started where we were doing uh, the Farnsworth invention by Aaron Sorkin. And there were stipulations in the contract for the marketing that Aaron Sorkin's name had to be such a font size bigger than everything else on the thing. And I'm just right. like, dude, we're a volunteer company in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania that nobody really knows about. I'll 
I'll call this play Aaron Sorkin just to get people to come watch it. <laughs> like nobody gives a shit what the name of the play is. They just give it. I'll make Aaron Sorkin's like Aaron Sorkin's the Farnsworth invention, like in super small script underneath it. Man, that's funny. All this stuff that goes on behind the scenes and what people get in arguments about. Before we uh, moved on to our decisions about how we felt about the film, I did want to relay one very interesting bit of trivia to you guys that about the Kane mutiny. So. Every time I told my husband, we're going to watch the Kane mutiny, he'd say, so is Michael Kane in it? And I was like, no, Michael Kane is not in it. Michael Kane was like 20 when this movie was made. And I was doing my trivia reading or whatever. And then I come across this little entry. Michael Kane was not born Michael Kane. Michael Kane was born something else. And he picked a name and his agent tells him like, oh, no, somebody else has got the name. And Michael Kane is on a telephone and he looks across the street and he's like, oh, I really like Humphrey Bogart. And he sees that the Kane mutiny is playing. And that is why Michael Kane is called Michael Kane is because of this movie. So your husband had a feeling. <laughs> he did. That's and I, I went in and told him tonight. I was like, you're never going to believe this. <laughs> stupid, stupid husband jokes. They always have a ring of truth to them. Uh, right? Honestly, before we before we go uh, and, and wrap up, there is one thing. Like, we touched on him a very little bit. Um, but... I think that Van Johnson not only does a good job in this movie, uh, especially in the mutiny scene, like yeah. Van Johnson is not, he is a, uh, another one who's like considered handsome in the 1950s as like leading man handsome in the fifties and at no other period, really. <laughs> yeah. Those, those scars on his face were not makeup though. That those were real. And they just didn't put makeup over them uh, because he was he was injured pretty grievously in, a I think, a car accident or a, mm -hmm. uh, something mm -hmm. along those lines. Yeah, it was a car accident. And had these scars. It was it was when he was uh, filming a guy named Joe, I think, with Spencer Tracy, where he he was injured. And they Spencer Tracy went to bat for him and wouldn't continue on the picture if. Uh, he was replaced, so they had to wait for him to finish uh, recuperating. But this was a, a a film where it's the only time that his scars weren't covered up with makeup. Other reason why I want to give a, a shout out to Van Johnson is that he also is like one of those uh, tragic uh, Hollywood stories where he was uh, a closeted homosexual for his entire oh, life interesting. Oh, God. Uh, and uh was in one of those uh studio arranged marriages because nobody would go see him if he was out so he had a beard and yeah he had a beard and rock hudson style yeah only like less famously gay like yeah uh and also uh, best of my knowledge, I don't, don't think died of AIDS, but um, I don't think so either. I, I I can't remember when he passed, but um, but yeah, he had a a very uh, tragic life that is that is kind of worth uh, worth examining. I know we don't have time to go into the nitty gritty on it today, but just wanted to give a a little shout out to my guy Van Johnson, who I've never really thought a whole lot of as an actor. Uh, he actually came to prominence because everybody who wasn't 4F, because they had a metal plate in their head, was 
uh, fighting the war. And so he kind of like was the fill-in leading man while Jimmy Stewart and Clark Gable and company were off serving. Um, but That's yeah, interesting. This, I thought, yeah, he had a really fascinating life and man, he nailed that mutiny scene. Like I've never seen him like command more presence than when he says, captain, I'm sorry, I'm relieving you of command. You're a sick man. Like so good. Yeah, definitely. Yes. Hadn't seen him before my first time, I think. Um, I wanted to throw down just to defend May Wynn for a second, since again, performance wasn't great. Writing wasn't great. She does have a great line in their, uh, scene, uh, at, uh, on the patio when they're eating. And she says, uh, order me a drink and then we'll fight. And I was like, Ooh, I'm going to have to use that. That's a pretty good line. <gasps> oh. oh, so no. And that's, that's not that scene. That's the first oh, okay. scene. Um, that's the very beginning. Yeah, that's her That's her first line, actually, I think. Yeah, it, when he comes in late and she's done singing and she goes and sits down and oh, right. order me a drink and then we'll fight. Very nice. It's like, girl, you, I... <laughs> <laughs> no, I liked, I actually liked her performance. I liked her character. I wonder, though, if I'd be interested to know the, sh- the, the how this movie was shot, because they're typically not shot in order. I would be surprised if the uh, the Yosemite scene, that breakfast where they have the fight and she runs off, they're always fighting or they shouldn't eat together, really. I guess that's why I got confused, because they fight a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She, it, it ends with her like getting up and running away. Um, but I feel like their chemistry was weird, but also her character felt different in that scene. Like she hadn't really like settled into the character yet and had a lot of confidence with it. In that scene, I wouldn't be surprised if that was the first one that those they shot with her. Yeah, as far as I'm concerned, it's not the worst like love story in a film ever. But if you take all of it out, I don't think the film loses very much. I don't. Yeah. Um, no, and it would have been a little shorter. But I would have never found out that back in apparently in the 50s, they actually used to like dump burning pine coals off of the falls or off of the cliff there in yosemite off of the mountain yeah they had a big bonfire and then when it was burning out they would just push it over the cliff. but first y'all let the fire fall and then dump these like and i'm like this sounds like a very great- melodramatic all all i could think was like what about wildfires? Uh, yeah, thank you. Like, my dad's house burned down, like, a couple of years ago in the fire. I live in California. I'm like, what are you doing, you morons? What's, right? Did you, did you read about why they stopped doing that? Because uh, they didn't want to clean up the the pine at the because bottom not because of the the wildfire hazard or because of the <laughs> the burning everything down it was because like it was such a popular attraction that people were like crowds were fucking up yosemite right just to see <laughs> and they were tired of cleaning up after them so they but when you when people would call and say hey are you still doing that uh and they'd say no but they would refer to the footage in the cane mutiny as the best the best film footage of the the firefall. The, the good news is that if you want to still see the firefall effect, and you can Google this, uh, there is a certain time of year when sunset over a certain waterfall in Yosemite, or opposing a certain waterfall, causes this effect that makes it look like there's fire. It basically makes it look like that, even though it's a waterfall, but the oh, way the light hits it makes awesome. it look like fire, and that doesn't have to cause any problems or risk wildfires, so... 
there's there's a nice yeah. natural yeah. solution. Water does the opposite thing. <laughs> exactly. Famous for that, in fact. Well, I think we're I'm excited because we're getting close to our first 90 minute episode, give or take. So we're we're on target mm-hmm. here. Why don't we go around and uh Katie, you want to start? Sure. So we always ask ourselves, did the director succeed? And do we like a film? And in this instance, for me, the director absolutely succeeded. Like, it feels very real. I I think it's fairly obvious what they're going for. Like, this is a pretty, honestly, a very political movie. And it's something that examines PTSD and the U.S. Navy and court martials in general and so many different things and manages to lace them together in this absolutely enthralling story that feels for me at least obviously like i've talked about not everybody for me feels very well paced and we get some performances that are like i gotta say some of these are once in a lifetime performances for these actors like i love fred mcmurray and i think he's fabulous in double indemnity but in this he is just perfection at capturing that smarmy asshole who thinks he's better than everybody else and then we get to see that play out and he feels very realistic by the end. So the director just absolutely hit it out of the park with this. And I can see why it's not considered a classic, even if it wasn't as well received then. Um, And I really liked it. Like I texted my mom halfway through. I was watching it. It was like, Oh my God, I'm watching the Kane mutiny. She's like, Oh, I love that one. It's so good. Fred McMurray is so handsome. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, and it was just, it was such an interesting experience and something that having watched a lot of old movies, old movies can sometimes feel a bit campy to our current sensibilities because of like we talked about, like the mid-Atlantic accent and how technicolor worked and over the top things can be. And this feels like a, a film of its time without feeling over the top. Like the performances are rich but subtle the directing is purposeful but not overt everything is natural as opposed to feeling like i guess just debating was this on a stage or was this on a show so it was just for me i think it was much better than i even expected it to be even going into it knowing that fred mcmurray and humphrey bogart are in this Liam, what did you think? Um, you know, I I love this movie. I I like I said, I I grew up watching it. Yeah, Edward Dimitrik is uh, funny enough is a, a director that I don't have a lot of opinions on, one way or the other. He also doesn't have uh like a lot of vowels in his name. I just like no to point no that. vowels except <laughs> yeah. Dimitric is spelled with all Y's. It's like if it, it's like if Dimitric were Welsh. Yeah, I guess he's Ukrainian, but I was like, how the hell? Yeah, man, it's it's Y's all the way down, like uh, <laughs> just just like nipples in this movie. It's just Captain's nipples all the way down. Yeah, no, I thought it was. I think it's a really good movie, and I I like it a lot. But I like it specifically for the acting. Um, the, particularly, uh, Humphrey Bogart and Jose Ferrer, I think they, they got the, 
Yeah, no, for my money, I think they got the I think they got the 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 billing right as far as who I think the the draws of the movie are from an acting perspective. I think maybe they're the flashiest parts, but Humphrey Bogart just nails it. Uh Jose Ferrer nails it. Um Van jo- this is the best thing you'll see Van Johnson do for my money um uh fred mcmurray is it's funny like maybe i've just inherited my old man's bias but my old man never liked fred mcmurray but he said he's pretty sure it's because this was the first thing he saw him in and he hated him in this like as a character it's like maybe he's a nice guy maybe he's a great actor but man i hate fred mcmurray uh so i think i've got a little bit of that going on where i've seen him play a schmuck and a heel too many times like if katie have you seen the apartment oh i love the apartment it's my favorite billy wilder it's it's not a dissimilar type of character only he's like if anything sleazier in the he's so much sleazier in the apartment you know (laughs) everybody in the apartment except maybe jack lemon is super and and of course shirley mclean are super sleazy but uh the I do think that he has one of the great lines of the movie, though, that that exchange when he comes into the party and he's like, Tom, I didn't think you'd have the guts to show up here. And he says, I didn't have the guts not to like. I love that. That's that kind of like old fashioned writing that still like feels so good to me, but is Mm -hmm. probably a little hokey by modern standards. But it's like I know nobody talks that way, but I love it. Um, So, yeah, this is an acting piece for me. And. I feel like everybody else showed up to do their jobs well on on set behind the camera, but it all comes down to some of these performances for me, and that's where this movie lives or dies, and it really does a good job, but I don't know how much of this movie's success is based on Edward Dimitrik by that standard. So, uh, yeah, that's where I'm going to come down on that. I I will say that I can't really fight anybody on their criticisms of the pacing. The pacing is not spectacular. But I think we have our first instance in episode four of Liam going for a yes and a yes here. I think I think it's our first yeah, hit. I think which so makes too. sense. He picked the movie, so at least I did. Yeah. I did I that. Him, it was I me. give him credit for at least not picking a movie that he hated as his first choice, just so he could shit on it. So I give you credit there. Liam. I will. <laughs> I will do that. I'm not above that. We will see that. It's guaranteed. I I just want to say it now. Leprechaun is not a war movie, so that's not going to happen. Leprechaun is a war on the eyes. But Dan, (laughs) what did you think of this? This is like, you're not big into the old movies. This is your first Bogart. Like, how did it, how did you feel about it? Yeah, I really liked it. And again, I have, I don't have, uh, not that you're implying this, but I don't have any problem with old movies and I enjoy them. I'm just lacking in experience. So every time I dive in, I'm like pretty stoked because I know it's a, um, like, for example, I got into David Lean. And so now Lawrence Arabia is one of my favorites and Bridge of River Kwai is great. But I like, I've yet to see Dr. Zhivago, which is one of my girlfriend's favorites and she loves Russian history and stuff. So we're going to get into that. Totally. So every time I've ventured into old film or older film, um, I've always been pleasantly surprised. I am not someone who's put off by slower pacing um, or anything like that. You know, I really usually can immerse myself in a film as long as the writing and the acting is there. Um, 
and and also you know in the last few years doing more podcasting i've really gotten into you know i guess study sounds a little pretentious but you know looking at film more seriously and reading about them and really trying to understand the craft work and everything so i think there's always something good to learn regardless of whether the movie is riveting or whatever but no uh, i'm really glad uh liam picked this one um it's going to be interesting to see for me to see other humphrey bogart films and honestly like i don't that you you guys have all these references to fred mcmurray i don't think i've been exposed to him at all so it'll also be so i also got this sort of untainted viewing of some of these actors because i don't have any uh correlation with anything else so um I'm, i'm glad that we had that juxtaposition between the three of us so um yes i really liked it uh for one again i I think the crew really pulled it together the effects just worked great i loved the real navy stuff um i think the beach assault was a little confusing that's another thing that i'd kind of like not that i necessarily think they need to have exposition because we know exposition can be kind of overwrought and overdone etc but i was like what are the marines doing right now why are they putting out a yellow uh a yellow dye like i was a little confused by exactly what the hell was going on and i'm like is this minesweeper actually minesweeping in this operation or are they just like observing are they moving crew are they just spotting like it wasn't a hundred percent clear to me so again hopefully someone can write in and elucidate that for us in more detail um and yeah, like I said, I think it loses a point for me because I really, I think the love scene can be removed and yeah, maybe there's a few issues with pacing and stuff. It's not like a perfect film, but I think, um, I really, really enjoyed it. I'm pretty stoked to see, um, all these actors in other things. I was pleasantly surprised. It was great. Uh, so a lot of you on our social media, it, it seems to be two of the questions that come up the most as people really want to know, um, how do we pick our films and um you know can people see the list and stuff like that and i think we're going to carry on in the tradition of not making our our film list public although we do have a list that you can contribute to which is our request list and there's a way you can do that on the website go to dangerclosepod.com and there's a request tab there as well as we keep up with it on social media as well katie will tell you a little bit more about that but um essentially for our debut here and opening first five episodes we really decided to get together and kind of all together talk about how do we want to choose films and how do we want to introduce this show and so we really went for five very different films for our first five choices uh, because we wanted to have something for everyone and i think our next film is prime example of that and katie will tell you what we're doing So next time around, you'll get to hear us talk about Grave of the Fireflies. Definitely one of the sadder and more depressing war films. If you have not seen it, please, even if you don't regularly cry during movies, you might cry during this one. So Don't listen to her. It's a laugh a minute. (laughs) I haven't seen it yet. (laughs) No, it's hard. You've got kids, Liam. It's hard. Um, I know. (laughs) It's a 1988 film made by Isao Takahata. It's part of the Studio Ghibli empire, but it was not made by Miyazaki. And it is somewhat based on Takahata's own experiences at the end of World War II. It's about a young boy and his little sister after the bombings in Japan and during world war ii so get those kleenexes ready you will get to hear all of our opinions about it 
And uh, yeah, so if uh, you haven't joined the discussion group yet, you can go to Facebook and search Danger Close um, and you'll find the podcast discussion group there where we post the films. Um, please like us on Facebook and um, on you can follow us. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram, all at Danger Close Pod. We don't have a TikTok yet, but I hear we're working and we on do it. have a Reddit. We do also have a Reddit account, which is r slash danger close pod. And we keep everybody updated on all of those socials. So whichever you use, there's an avenue to check up on our progress. All right. Thanks to all of you for joining and listening in. And we'll see you on the next episode.